Well, I hope all of you are doing well, even with this uh, downpour we're getting. And welcome in to a dry place to uh, focus our minds, attention, and hearts affection on the things that are above, not the things that are below. And so let's just go before the Lord one more time and ask Him to prepare our hearts for the Word of God here today. Let's do that. And in this moment, if there is a, a, a valley, as we were singing about, a valley in your life, I want to encourage you to ask the Spirit to be very present with you in that current valley, that today, that in God's sovereignty, in His own timing, that this message today is not by accident that you are here to hear it, that it is for you. It is God directing the affairs of your life so that you would be here on such a day as this or be watching online at such a time as this to hear a message for you to your heart. That's the kind of God we serve. So in this valley, ask that he would be faithful to meet you there and work things for good and for his glory. Lord, speak through me today that my words would not be from mine, from my own thoughts or my own opinions, but they would be rooted and grounded in your word and the spirit speaking through me. So we give this time to you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if any of you had an older brother or sister, have an older brother or sister who casts a long shadow over you and maybe your siblings. Any of you have an older sibling like that? Maybe it's a sibling who, you know, they're always getting the straight A's. They're always making the honors roll. You know, maybe they're the valedictorian of your class. Or maybe it's uh, an older sibling who was an incredible athlete and just crushed it on the field. Or maybe it was uh, somebody who was just really popular, you know, really popular with the opposite sex. And you, as a younger brother or sister, had to feel like you were kind of living in that shadow. If any of you have experienced that, I want you to know that the author of the letter that we're going to be examining today and over the next few weeks can relate to you. This is, uh, this author of this letter that we're going to be examining didn't just have a brother who was, uh, you know, casting a long shadow. He had the brother, the greatest brother, the most accomplished person, the most popular person, most widely talked about person, the most, the one who made more impact in this world, on our planet, and in fact in the universe than anyone who's ever lived. Of course, we're talking about James and his older brother, Jesus. Did you know Jesus had younger siblings? Uh, he had one of those, his name, James, the author of this letter. He can relate to you in your circumstances here today. Can you imagine what it must have been like growing up with Jesus as your older brother? Just think about what that must have been like in the house. You know, you and James is like playing catch and he, you know, throws the ball in the wrong direction and it hits his mom's favorite lamp. Mom comes home and she says, does anyone have any idea why my lamp is in pieces on the floor? And James is just like, wasn't me. And Jesus is like, James, I know all things. <laughs> and the truth will set you free. <laughs> you know, can you imagine what it must have been like for James? 
Imagine living with Jesus. Imagine sharing a bathroom. Imagine eating the same food. Imagine getting Jesus's hand-me-downs. This is really like his life. And sometimes that kind of familiarity breeds contempt. Have you ever heard that said? James, that is true for James. The Bible says that James was sort of a skeptic. He was an outsider to the faith. He watched Jesus, but sort of from afar in his ministry, not really believing, having his doubts about Jesus. I mean, could it really be that my own brother is God in the flesh, the Messiah, the one who was to come? I mean, can it be? It can't be. In fact, it wasn't until Jesus, that first Easter morning, rose from the dead powerfully that James's life was completely transformed. He went from outsider skeptic doubting to all-in believer that his brother indeed was and is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. And he became a very, uh, an amazing influencer for the gospel. He became leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he became the one who wrote this letter that we're going to be studying for five weeks. He introduces himself in James 1 as the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We might put in parentheses, my big bro. (laughs) Now, many historians put the writing of this letter very early in the life of the church, likely 47 AD. This was just a decade and a half after Jesus Uh, was on the earth. So it's very close to the time that Jesus uh, was walking this planet. And his original audience is right here in verse one. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now, who are these 12 tribes he's talking about? He's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel, but more specifically, the Jewish Christians who used to live in Jerusalem, but because of persecution had been scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. Now, can you imagine what it must have been like for these Jewish Christians experiencing this persecution, having to uproot everything they've ever known? Having, can you imagine what it must have been like to leave their culture, their community that they love, their friends and their family, their occupations? I mean, a, a city where they could probably trace their family name, not a generation or two, but all the way back to the 12 tribes and having to leave that place, take everything you have either on foot or on donkey or on caravan and go to a foreign land, a place of, and a people that they do not know. Now this of course is the experience of many refugees in our world today that would go through that. You imagine what that must be like for these Jewish Christians and people who do this today. Talk about hard times, talk about suffering and persecution. And this is precisely why James spends the first 12 verses of his letter speaking about hard times. These believers know a thing or two about hard times. Now, I want you to know sort of the style in which James writes his letter. James isn't interested in philosophical, uh, you know, arguments or theory. He's not saying, you know what, suffering, what really is suffering anyway? This is not his style. He's not interested in telling stories. You know, in order to tell you about suffering, let me tell you a parable about a puppy who lost his way. This is not James' style. James is sort of a matter of fact, hands in the dirt, boots on the ground. How does this really work in real life? The IRL, that's really how we got 
our name for our series. James is interested in taking faith, these concepts of faith, and drilling them down in real life, in real relationships, in your real day-to-day finances and budget, in, uh, in your marriage, in the church, in how you speak, in the challenges that you face, in your work life, all subjects that we're gonna be talking about over these weeks. And so right out the gate, while the ink is still warm, James flies through his greeting and he's like, let's get after it, okay? Let's talk about how to face trials in a way that makes you better, not bitter. This is what James is after. Now, I don't know about you, but I want better and not bitter. Is that what you want? Raise your hand if you want better, not bitter. Yeah, I think we all want that. Have you met bitter people in your life? Do you ever wonder how somebody gets bitter? I'll tell you how it happens. They go through their share of hard times. And as they're going through their hard times, they're believing certain things. They're making certain decisions. They're allowing their mind to dwell on certain uh, thoughts about their circumstances that gradually produces bitterness in their lives. On the other hand, have you ever met somebody who's super wise and humble and just filled with joy? Have you met people like that? Do you ever wonder how they get like that? It's because they go through their share of hard times and they believe certain things about those experiences. It's because they make certain decisions during that season of their life and they choose to dwell on certain things in their circumstances and gradually it produces a better version of themselves. See, it's not because they don't go through hard times. It's precisely because they go through hard times and either come out bitter or better. So you could have a sibling. You and your sibling could grow up in the very same household, go through virtually the same terrible upbringing, a lot of the same trials in life. One's bitter and one's better. And so James wants us to know how we can come out the other side better. How do we do that? It gives us three keys, three keys we're going to look at today to get better, not bitter through hard times. Okay, so that's our outline. Number one, consider trials as God's training program. Look at verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. Now, this is a verse that's often quoted, often ill-timed in its quote. Any of you been a recipient of this verse at seasons of your life? Oh, consider it all joy. And you're like, yeah, why don't you say that a little closer? (laughs) I don't want to consider it. It's not joyful. Get off my back. So is what James saying here that trials are joy? Is that what he's saying? No, he's not a masochist. He's not saying, yay, trials, let's throw another party, everybody. No. He's saying consider joy. Consider it joy. In other words, James is more interested in how you're thinking about your trials than he is about feelings. He's not denying the feelings. The feelings are real. 
He's talking about how we think about it. And there's two common pitfalls in how we think about hard times. We might say there's a a religious pitfall and a secular pitfall. The religious pitfall might sound like this. If I'm a good person, if I'm a moral person, if I'm a religious person, if I'm an obedient Christian person, then I can avoid trials and suffering in my life. And it's this sort of deal that we think we can cut with God. God, I'm going to be really good. And because of that, you're going to make my life easy and comfortable and pain-free. And there are plenty of preachers out there who fill big churches preaching, peddling this kind of thinking. I once heard a famous preacher say that he was declaring a season of ease. Lifting the burdens of the people who are listening. Hmm. I wonder about the person who hears that message and a season of ease is declared over them and then they find themselves in an incredibly hard time. I wonder how destructive that could be for that person's faith. Maybe they're a sincere Christian, although maybe misguided. And now they think, wait a second, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. Maybe I don't have enough faith because here I am in a hard time. And he said, it's a season of ease. It could be very destructive in the life of a believer. This isn't what James is saying at all. Trials are inevitable. Anything that can happen to any one person can happen to any Christian person. There's also another pitfall, not just a religious pitfall. The other one is a secular pitfall that goes something like this, that, that the purpose of life is to live for your own happiness and avoid suffering. Is this not the mantra of modern day America? Do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever makes you comfortable and safe and whatever you want, pursue it and don't let anyone tell you any different. This is the mantra of our day. Everything in our culture reinforces this idea that unless you have all the things that make you happy, comfortable and safe, then joy is impossible. And and if you don't have these things, then you have nothing to live for. And what happens is that people who have this mindset are ill-prepared or atrophied when the hard times do come. They have no idea what to do with it. No idea how to grapple with these things. James gives us a far better way, doesn't he? James says, when you face the trials, consider that this is God's training program. See, the key to experiencing joy, even in the trials of life, is a correct understanding, knowing what God is up to. You don't have to know his full plan, but you gotta, you gotta know some basics. One, that God is at work in the midst of your hard time. That he is producing something precious. He's producing precious minerals like diamonds and rubies that can only happen through pressure. This is what he's up to, like the the popular Christian uh, worship song. Even when I don't see it, he's working. He never stops. He never stops working. This is what God is doing. And the precious thing that he's working for in our lives, James says, is maturity and wholeness, not lacking anything. In other words, becoming more like Jesus, becoming a resilient disciple of Jesus, what we're after here at Brandywine Valley Church for your life and for mine. And see, the journey of resilient discipleship happens through faith training. Any of you like to train physical training? You like to get on the elliptical? You like to run? You like to pump some weights out there? Some of you guys, you know, 
big tough guys out there. Any of you like to do that? Physical training and spiritual training are very, very similar. Faith training and spiritual training. If you uh, ever see me over at the Y when I'm working out, it ain't pretty. It's, it's ugly. I'm sweating. I'm grunting. Uh, I'm making weird sounds. I'm grimacing. I'm breathing heavy. Okay, not, not awesome. Not my best moment. It's hard. Training is hard, but there is a kind of joy in it, isn't there? When you train... Because you know that the training, as hard as it is, as annoying as it can be, as much as you want it to end, is producing something good, isn't it? At least you're hoping that it produces a healthier, stronger, more resilient version of yourself. And this is exactly what God is doing through faith training. God is using trials like the resistance bands, like the weights, to develop certain precious qualities that only hard times can produce. I mean, think about it just for a second. How in the world do you think you're gonna become a more patient person? You think God just zaps you with patience? Hasn't done that to me. How do you think God makes you humble? Just birthing you as a humble person? No, it's through hard times. How does he give you compassion? How does he give you peace? How does he give you freedom that nothing in this world can take from? It's through his training program. This is what God's after in your life. One of Michelangelo's most famous works is the statue of David. Out of a single enormous block of marble, 17 feet high, 13,000 pounds, with no machinery, he chiseled out the statue of David. Isn't that amazing that there's people walking around the planet that can do these kinds of things? And he was once asked in an interview um, how he did it. And he said, simple, I chipped away everything that didn't look like David. <laughs> Thanks, it was really, really helpful. Thank you for that. God, in his great love for you and I, is willing to chisel and chip away anything in your life that isn't resembling Jesus Christ. Because that's what he's after for you, forever and ever. Now this doesn't, doesn't happen automatically. You don't just like go in a trance when you're going through trials and then wake up, boom, I'm a better person. It's not how it happens, does it? It's possible and in fact often is the case that at the end of the hard times you become a worse version of yourself, more self-consumed or desensitized or self-pitying or negative. Right? James says we have to persevere by faith. This word, persevere, is a Greek word. I'm going to teach it to you today, okay? So you can say, I know Greek. Okay, the word is hoopermeno. Okay, say it with me. Hoopermeno. Very good, class. Hoopermeno just means hyper stand. Hyper stand. He's saying, you have to hyperstand your ground in the battle. You stand firm when the hard times come. When you're going through trials, do the things that you were doing before the trials came. If you're reading your Bible, keep reading your Bible. Stand. Keep praying. Keep coming to church. Keep worshiping through song. Keep pursuing community. Keep believing what is true and not the lie. Keep hyper standing. It's when we persevere. 
that we continue to be trained. It's when we stop persevering that the training program of growth stagnates. So how do we get better and not bitter? We got to think about what God is up to in his training program. Here's the second thing we need to do. We need to seek and trust God's wisdom and not our own. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If any of you lacks wisdom, he says, which is kind of like, like, yeah, no duh, like we all lack wisdom, especially when we're going through trials. Do you know that confusion and trials kind of go hand in hand? When you're going through a hard time, doesn't it sometimes feel so disorienting? Doesn't it feel like sometimes you don't know which way is up and which way is down? Do you ever feel paralyzed when you're going through hard times? I do. And it's in these moments it's essential to seek wisdom. I mean, it sounds really simple, isn't it? Why is it? Why is it so many times when we're going through the hard times, the last thing we do is pray? Shouldn't it be the first thing we do? Why is that? Maybe it's because we have this idea of God, like he expects us to have everything all figured out. And we have to prove it to God. God, I've got this. I don't, I don't need anything. I'm good. I've got this. This isn't how God operates. You ever have your boss give you a project or an assignment, or maybe you're brand new on the job, and you really don't know what you're supposed to be doing, but you're too ashamed to ask, you're too embarrassed to like ask for help. And so you sort of just sort of like fake it till you make it. Oh, what's they, what are they doing? Okay, I'll do the, do the same that they're doing. And you just hope that you sort of figure out what it is that you're supposed to be doing. This sort of describes my first year as a pastor here at Brandywine. <laughs> this is how we often approach God. I've got this God, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'm a good Christian. Meanwhile, God is saying, just say the word. Do you know that one of God's favorite words is help? One of his very favorite words is help. And he knows that we don't know what we're doing. So we might as well ask him for help. He will give you wisdom that you are looking for. He is more willing to answer our prayers than we are to offer them. And he doesn't just give us a little help, a little wisdom. He's not tight-fisted with it and stingy. It is a buffet of wisdom. He will back up the truck of wisdom and provide it for you. And not just to a few elite Christians, but to all Christians. God's generosity and giving wisdom is not like flying first class where only the elite get the champagne flute and the hot towel and the, you know, the the seat that reclines all the way down so you can sleep. I'm not bitter about it. <laughs> God gives to all, even the backseat Christians. He gives it to all of us. God freely and generously gives. And doesn't that make sense considering he's the God who did not spare his own son for us, that he would give us wisdom when we ask. Now, here's the catch. There is a way in which we ask that is critical. And so many people miss this. Look at verse six, he continues, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. 
You say, well, great. Well, I'm, I'm like, I'm sunk then because I deal with doubt all the time. Are you saying is what James is saying? Is we have any doubts? Like we don't get any answer to our prayers? I mean, is this like Indiana Jones in the last crusade when he goes and he like steps off that ledge into the abyss? Is that what you're saying? It's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what James is saying. He's not saying any doubt. He's saying a particular kind of doubt. Notice what he says. What kind of doubt? It is a doubt that leads to double-mindedness. What is double-mindedness? Double-mindedness is when we have split loyalties, when we hedge our bets with God. It's when we say, oh, we'll ask for wisdom, but in the meantime, I'm going to see if there's better options that show up. It's when we don't believe that God's ways are always best in our lives. It might say, sound like a prayer like this, double-minded prayer. would be, God, give me wisdom about my singleness. Meanwhile, you're on dating apps trying to date men or women that aren't Christians that you have no business being with. That's double-mindedness in your prayers. Or how about, you know, when you say, God, give me wisdom for how to get out of this debt. But meanwhile, you're upgrading your wardrobe and charging it to your credit card. This is double-mindedness. This mindset doesn't receive from God. In fact, it can't receive from God, from God because God doesn't play games like that. He's looking for single-mindedness, sincerity, that whatever God's wisdom gives us from his word, from a sermon, from a conversation with a friend, from your own prayer life, whatever wisdom he gives you, that you're going to lean into the wisdom and not away from that wisdom. One of my favorite prayers in all the Bible is from King Jehoshaphat. If you're looking for a good baby name, Jehoshaphat. <laughs> King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, he's, he and the, the people of Judah are facing down a vast army that is about to destroy them, who is far more powerful than they are. And he breaks into this beautiful prayer. And at the end of this prayer, he says this, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. That's a single-minded prayer for help. That's a single-minded prayer for wisdom and it's the kind of prayer that God answered for Jehoshaphat and he'll answer for you. Not eyes shifting to the left or the right or to our own wisdom or the wisdom of this world. It's prayers that sound like this. Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about my financial stress right now, but my eyes are on you. Father, I'm facing a family crisis that's about to tear apart our family and I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Lord, I have this diagnosis and I'm afraid and I don't know what my future is going to look like, but my eyes are on you. You pray those kind of prayers. You ask for that kind of wisdom. God provides generously. Is there an area of your life right now where maybe you're kind of asking for wisdom, but if you're being really honest with yourself, you're hedging your bets. You got one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world. Can I encourage you to place your eyes solely on him and watch the wisdom that he gives you? That's the second thing. You want to get better, not bitter? Wisdom. Seek wisdom. Third, take the long view of eternity. Take the long view of eternity. Now, before I go into this one, I want to let you know between verses 9 and 11, 
I'm skipping them in this sermon, not because I don't want to preach on them. I just, I, I just ran out of time. And sometimes that happens. And so I'm giving you a bonus key number four for free. <laughs> you can get it online. It'll be on our Facebook page. We're going to put it on the e-news. Uh, it's about four minutes just to really get the full sense of this passage that I don't have time to preach today. But let's look at this last one, taking the long view of eternity from verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. What is James saying? He's saying we must view our short-term trials through the long-view lens of eternity. We can't be looking at the microscope of our short-term. We need to be grabbing the telescope and looking at the long view of eternity. See, there's this weird thing among Christians. I wonder if you've noticed, or maybe this is you yourself. I think it's somewhat unique to Christians. Many Christians feel some kind of guilt in being motivated by eternal rewards. You ever run into that? Maybe that's you today. You feel, ah, that kind of sounds selfish to be motivated by eternal rewards. And if you're struggling with that kind of guilt, I mean, you, you do you, but can I free you from that? I want to free you from that because scripture over and over and over calls us, encourages us to be motivated by the future, by eternal reward. In fact, Jesus said it when he says, hey, anyone who has left houses or families or property behind, trust me, they will have a hundredfold in eternity. This is Jesus motivating us to, to be motivated by eternal reward. And when we are in the thick of it, in the hard times, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And a critical part of that gospel is that Jesus accomplished for us, through his death and resurrection on the cross, a future reward, a crown of life, as James calls it, an eternity with God forever and ever. It's like a superpower to hold on to when you're going through hard times. Why should we not lean into that? Lean into that. Be motivated by the reality that life is short and eternity is long. Isn't that true? Life is short, eternity is long. And so that breakup, yes, it's really painful. I've been through it. But life is short and eternity is long. Uh, if you're saying, man, I'm dealing with this disability or I'm dealing with mental health challenge right now, to remember life is short, eternity is long. I'm gonna, I'm gonna store up the treasures for the next life. Lord, help me to persevere in thinking that way. Think about it like this. If you are a Christian, if you believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross for you, not because of your works to get to heaven, but because of his, that he's done that, and that he rose from the dead for the grave to guarantee your future. If you believe that's what it means to be a Christian, to place your faith in that, it means that this life is as closest thing to hell as you'll ever get. And it only gets better from here. Heaven awaits you. Heaven awaits you. Isn't that amazing to think about? We don't think about that enough. And let me, let me just encourage you out of love to, to warn you if you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted that, maybe you're still hanging on to your own goodness or your own morality or you know, your, 
the fact that your parents or grandparents were Christian or maybe they helped build a church and so you should be good with God or whatever it is that you hang on to. Can I say to you out of love that this life is his closest thing. If you don't trust in him, the closest thing to heaven that you will ever get. And that eternity will be a place that is separated from the goodness, all goodness and grace and mercy of God. I don't want that for you. We don't want that for you. God doesn't want that for you. He's not willing that any would perish, but all come to the saving knowledge through Jesus Christ. Trust him, not yourself. Now, as we close this, I wanna put this all together through a in real life story. We wanna try to do that throughout this series because that's what James is all about, in real life. How does faith work in real life? A real life testimony from a Brandywine family that is literally going through really hard times as we speak. The Coban family, you might know them. They're part of the church here, Anita and Chip and their, their family. Um, I'm well aware of their situation. And uh, I asked Anita if she might tell me a little bit about how James 1 actually works in real life in their family situation. And she graciously wrote this. Imagine walking through the darkest night with only a dim flashlight and a compass you secretly have no clue how to use. You think you know how to get to where you're going, but somehow you keep making wrong turns and then the batteries in your already dim flashlight die. This is how I feel most of the time. No one and nothing on earth can prepare you for the news that your child will be born very sick. You can try to prepare, but I will tell you from experience it's impossible. At 20 weeks of pregnancy, Chip and I were told our child would be born with a critical heart condition, leaving him with half a heart. Our son Aaron was born at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's special delivery unit, and at 46 hours old, he had his first of three open heart surgeries. To date, he has endured more surgeries, procedures, tests, medications, and exams than anyone I know. But here's the thing, when Aaron was born, I did a lot of praying and one night I felt God speaking to my very soul, telling me to let go and give him all I was attempting to lift alone. I knew it was time to hand off my trials to Jesus if I was going to survive. My perspective shifted and instead of being too scared, too afraid, too stressed, I became hopeful and felt an overwhelming sense of peace. I was able to let go of the pain that had come with not being able to fix Aaron's heart and instead to focus on the gift of being a mom to my miracle and his three siblings. The more I began to share our story, the more I was able to see God, God's hand over everything, guiding the process I once felt so alone in. Building my faith resilience is a continual process since every day it seems we are tested with a new challenge. I watched my son as he went into respiratory failure. I've seen him struggle to walk after suffering a stroke during surgery. I watch my five-year-old daily take 15 medications and I'm able to feel all those emotions and yet to see the beauty in the messiness of life, to see the beauty in the messiness of life. It is because of this mess that Aaron has personally gotten to know Jesus as his savior. 
It is because of the scars, literal and mental, we are here today. Without trials and suffering, listen, without trials and suffering, we would not know how deeply we need God in our lives. Let me tell you, Chip and Anita and their family are getting better, not bitter. Oh, the struggle is real. You can talk to them. They can write a book about it. But they are getting better. Why? Not because of the lack of circumstances, but because of them, because of the struggles. And they're trusting to lean into his wisdom, not away from it. They're taking the long view of the telescope, not the microscope. They are trusting God's process, his training program in their life. Now, Chip and Anita would be the first to tell you that they are not heroes. They aren't perfect, lots of ups and downs holding on, at times feeling like they're failing. At times, all of us are gonna feel like we're failing. Here's the great news that they hold on to, that we must hold on to, that there's only one person who faced the deepest and most profound hard times and never doubted, never gave up, never failed, never was double-minded even once, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, he says, we need to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. And then he turns to us, believers, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Look to Jesus, consider the one who, here's our word, persevered, same word Jesus, uh, James used. Remember the word you remember, the Greek word, hooper, meno, Jesus hyper stood. In, in fact, he hyper hung on a cross. He could have in a moment called the angels to take him down. He didn't. He stayed. He endured the cross as shameful and painful as it was. Because of the joy set before him. You ever wonder what that means, the joy set before Jesus? What was the joy set before him? Oh, friends, it was having us forever and ever and ever and ever as brothers and sisters with him. That's the joy that kept him on that cross. And it's because of him and what he's done, his scars, that we are healed. Friends, look to Jesus ultimately. You're going through the hard times. I get it. It's real. Look to him and find the strength. I want to give you a moment just for you and the Lord. No one else. It's just for you and him. You can close your eyes and just think about him being right here. As you heard Pastor Hayes say, what if Jesus were right here? And you talk to him about the trials of your life. I want you to evaluate. Really, am I really getting better or am I getting bitter? What, what path am I on? You ask the Lord for help, maybe for help for the first time, like real help. Not hedging your bets, but real single-minded help for wisdom. You ask him. Doesn't need to be fancy. It can just be, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Maybe that's all you can get out today. talk to him.